0: Welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and again, we're going to be talking about the Kingdom of God. And so I'm actually in Colorado now doing the show, but uh, so we're using a little bit different setup, so hopefully everything will work out. But uh, we're going to talk about a number of things that I thought was uh, uh, on my mind this week and uh, in conversing with other people who think they believe in Jesus. And what they actually believe in is a personification of Jesus presented to them by modern religion, and modern religion includes all kinds of different ideas. I mean, you got Methodists, and you got Lutherans, and you got Catholics, and you got uh, Jehovah Witnesses and uh, Baptists, and you know those are major names. But they're even amongst those people, there are all sorts of different ideas about. Who Jesus is and what Jesus is. And you can say, well, Jesus is the Son of God. You know, and but then define Son of God. What do you mean by Son of God? You know, Jesus is a Savior. But what do you mean by Savior? And what does that look like? And how do you interpret that? You know, like he has the doctrine of Jesus. We, you know, I actually got into trouble once because I said the doctrine's with an S, of Jesus, as if there are multiple doctrines. And there actually is, and the guy was right in his criticism. I don't necessarily think he was emotionally or spiritually centered when he he made the criticism, but that's an individual thing. But he is right. There is only one doctrine of Jesus. If you take out a chunk of the doctrine of Jesus, and say that we're not going to look at that doctrine of Jesus, then it's not the whole doctrine of Jesus. And therefore, it's not the whole truth. And if it's not the whole truth, it's a lie. Because that's the definition of a lie, is something that's not the whole truth. Now, good and evil is always represented with the metaphor, ideas connected with light and darkness. There is light, which is a positive existence of Something, protons, photons, something, that we call light. And there's darkness, which is simply the absence of light. It isn't there. Good and evil, light and darkness. Good is a positive reality, but evil is the absence of that positive reality, that positive creative force that we call God. The absence of God produces, by the absence of God, evil. Now, evil may have power, but it's robbing power through, you know, processes, you know, spiritual physics, if you will, through the quantum, by, you know, a vacuum is the absence of something, yet a vacuum has power when you release the vacuum. It sucks things in with tremendous power. But... The vacuum is just the absence of something. The power actually comes from somewhere else. comes from the pressure of everything outside of the vacuum. (laughs) So, anyway, that basic idea of understanding that light and darkness are not opposites. It's light is creation, is reality, it is logos, it is truth. And darkness is the absence of that truth. And Now, we have many shades of light and darkness, where you can have a bright white light that is so bright that, you know, you can't even look at it. And then you can have darkness that's pretty dark, difficult to see, but you can kind of see in there and you can function a little bit. You're not stumbling in all the furniture, but you can't read (laughs) by that light because it's so dark in there. So, all these different variations, you know, Paul talks about looking through a glass dimly. Well, this is because we don't all see things perfectly. So, when we say we believe in Jesus, how much of Jesus do we see? Do we really see the light of Jesus? Are we aware of the whole nature of Jesus or, you know, when we seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, are we seeking all of his righteousness? Well, the reality is everybody has dealt with this to one degree or another throughout the ages, but they put a lot of different names on it. You know, like Buddha was a social reformer. He wasn't really trying to start a new religion or become a god or anything like that. He, was, he saw problems in the social structure and was trying to fix it with what became the philosophy of Buddha. But that was 400 years before Christ. Uh, Abraham had views. Moses had views. Uh, We can go back to Cain and Abel. They had views. Abel had one view. Cain had another view. They did things differently. And of course, God has a view and we know that to be reality. And Adam and Eve... Ate of the the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which I would define in more simple terms, they tried to decide for themselves, with their own minds, what was good and what was evil. Before that, they ate of the tree of life, and I've equated the idea of the tree of life with what we call today, in the New Testament, revelation. They walked with God. They received revelation directly from God. But today, are we receiving revelation from God? Are we listening to the Holy Spirit? Christ said he would send the Comforter. That would be a source of this revelation, which we call the Holy Spirit. These words like Holy Spirit, Revelation, Tree of Life, uh, Tree of Knowledge, uh, these are... Verbal representations of metaphysical, quantum, spiritual realities. Now, a lot of people will think, well, there is no spiritual reality. There's physical and that's it. Well, I would beg to disagree, but how I prove that to somebody, I really can't. If you can't see the spiritual realm, you can't see the spiritual realm. It's dark to you. It's invisible to you. You don't see into the light of the spiritual realm. Now, I think some people actually see some things in the spiritual realm, but they deny it, and they don't realize that's where they're getting it from. They think they're imagining all the ideas in their mind on their own. Probably not. But the reality is, if there is a spiritual realm, if there is a spiritual reality alongside this physical reality that we exist in, and, of course... That's what they're telling us in, you know, the original book of Genesis is that there was darkness upon the deep, it was without form, and the spirit gave it form, gave it the reality that we see, the physical reality that we see is a product of a spiritual reality that is more subtle, we can use that word, more subtle, more primal, more original, from God himself, the spirit of God, the breath of God, formed what we call reality. We know reality, well, we can know to some degree that reality is consisted of, you know, atoms, and atoms join together and make molecules, and molecules join together and make furniture, (laughs) and, and that's the reality that, you know, we bump into when we walk around in a dark room. You bumped into the reality of the chair. You didn't imagine the chair was there. It actually banged into your knee. And without getting too metaphysical or too quantum in it, that reality of the chair bumping into your knee is the reality that we deal with on a day-to-day basis. You can imagine there are no cars coming, but if you drive out in the intersection and there is a car coming, reality changes strikes you in the side, <laughs> so, and you can deny it, but you still get hit, but the spiritual reality, that is more difficult to talk about, but what happens is that we cling to things that we can see and feel and touch and uh, experience And they become the source of our reality. And this makes it more and more difficult to see the spiritual patterns that God's creation is actually a manifestation of. So, if we're going to be looking at this from God's point of view, from from Jesus' point of view, we need to see things in the spirit. He talks about that, seeing things in the spirit. So, we're going to look back. And a lot of people that either were around the time of Jesus or predated Jesus or around that, that context of history to see what they were thinking and then hold Jesus up to see the contrast between those. This is what you do in reality is you look out in the world and you try or on your computer screen you adjust the contrast to make things more clearly. So you want to read the letters, but you need to change the background to make the letters more clear. And the background is the history in which Jesus Christ existed. So we need to understand that history so that when we read the biblical text, we get a better picture of what the author is actually talking about. Because that gives us contrast. And and we talked previously in the weeks about Julius Caesar was called the son of God. Augustus Caesar was called the son of God. Augustus Caesar was called the savior. And Jesus was called the son of God. That's what the angel said to Mary, that he would be called the son of God. And he was called the son of God. But Caesar was called the son of God. So this is going to create a political conflict. If you start calling your Jesus, the Son of God, while all the Romans are calling Caesar the Son of God, they're going to say, wait a minute. Caesar's the Son of God. Who's this Jesus guy? (laughs) So it's going to create a political conflict, yet we see, when we see these terms being used in the scriptures, in the biblical text, other people reading those, it's going to create conflict, the Christian conflict with Rome if you call Jesus the Savior, the slaughter of Christians, the Romans are going to think, at least the Romans who don't become Christians, <laughs> the, the other Romans who still hold Caesar as the Son of God are going to say, well, no, Caesar is the Savior, and there's going to be a conflict. The same as you could have a conflict between a Baptist and a Methodist, maybe, or a Catholic and a, and, and a Lutheran. So, Understanding that will give us some contrast because we want to see the distinctive difference between Jesus the Son of God and Caesar the Son of God. Jesus the Savior and Caesar the Savior. Caesar was also called the father of Rome. And Jesus had called no man on earth father. Is that what Jesus was talking about when he said, call no man on earth father, is the fact that Caesar was called the father of Rome, the Patronus of Rome in the Latin uh, would be Patronus, our father who art, who art in Rome, and Jesus is saying, our father who art in heaven. If you've seen me, you've seen the father, but Jesus wasn't the father. But he was the father, but he wasn't the father because he talked to the father. So, but that's the mystery. We won't get into that or we'll never get anywhere. But Caesar was the father of Rome because he was the son of God. And so if you've seen Caesar, supposedly you see seen <laughs> the God that Caesar's talking about. So again, looking at the distinctions between those two personas, those two personages at that time, will give us an insight into the difference between the doctrine of Jesus and the doctrine of Caesar. Because if we start taking bits and pieces of the doctrine of Caesar, and sliding them across over to the doctrines of Jesus, or take some of the doctrines of Jesus and try to slide them over to Caesar we're going to get confusion, and God is not the author of confusion. Man is often the author of confusion, (laughs) because man doesn't want to see the whole truth, or because he sits in darkness, which is really just a manifestation of not wanting to see the whole truth. I want to see this truth, I want to see this, but I don't want to look here. I don't want to look at this, and there's many reasons why you would not want to look at this truth, but you're willing to look at another truth. So, again, we're going to look at some people at that time. One of them is uh, Marcus Tullius Cicero, whose name wasn't Cicero or Tullius, but Marcus. Remember what we said about Gaius Julius Caesar. Caesar was his family name. Julius was his clan name. So, the same with Marcus, Tullius, Cicero. Cicero was his family name. Tullius was his clan name. And Marcus was his actual name. But if I just call him Marcus, you might not recognize him. But Cicero, people have heard that. But he said, to not know what occurred before you were born is to forever remain a child. In other words, you can't mature until you know really where you came from, how you, that the context in which you were born, which is the history prior to your existence. And this is why we get into why, were why was Caesar in Judea? What was going on in that? We've covered that in a lot of shows. All these shows are available at Preparing You. They're available on podcasts. They're searchable at Preparing You. And, uh we can we can you can go back and learn from what was going on. Why Caesar was there? He was actually there briefly to determine who was the rightful king of Judea, which was the remnant of the kingdom of Israel. And so, whoever was the rightful king of Judea was also the rightful king of Israel if the people who were from Israel and all the other people of the world were to accept him as king and follow his doctrine, they would be following the doctrine of the king, actually of the whole world in the sense of planet. Because, go back to Adam. Adam was had dominion over the earth. Uh, Abraham was the rightful heir of Adam, by way of Melchizedek, which, you know, you can debate this if you want, we've talked about it before, was probably Shem, who was still alive at that time, and we don't know who Shem blessed as his, the heir to what Shem was heir to, which was the planet. Now, you can, you can debate this if you want, there's a reason why I think it's important that Adam was heir to dominion of this planet, that we were to dress and keep. And this is going to become very relevant in the days ahead. And we can see the scenes, some of us can see the scenes being set as to who has dominion over this planet and over the people on this planet and over the the fishes and the, and the flora and the fauna of this planet. Who has dominion over it? Because that is the battle that is before us. It's not just... You know, insurrectionists on January 6th or, or the New World Order or the World Economic Forum or the Great Reset. But it's actually who has dominion over this planet. Now, Christ came to have dominion to set the captive free. Caesar was not really interested in setting the captive free. We'll get into that more later. He was actually interested in bringing the people into bondage under the Pax Romana. (laughs) Uh, Augustus, according to Gibbons, who wrote The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, we may be in the decline and fall of the empires of the world today, the governments of the world today. So it may be good to know that setting too. And we can't go into all of it because we're going to have to move along here. Uh, But Augustus was sensible that mankind is governed by names nor was he deceived in his expectation that the Senate, the old men, the Congress, uh, and people, you know, the laity, the people of, you know, the streets, would submit to slavery, provided they were respectfully assured that they still enjoyed their ancient freedoms. Now, Gibbons is writing this, telling you that Somehow or other, Augustus was deceived the people into thinking that they are free when they're actually in bondage to him and to whoever he's in bondage to. And one of the ways he did this, the greatest destroyers of liberty are those who spread amongst the people, gifts, gratuities, and benefits. He who ruined the uh, the, the Roman people was he who first granted them benefits. Who first granted benefits in America? Well, you can go way back, but one of the big guys was FDR. So FDR ruined America. But it's really not FDR's fault, and we'll get to that uh, probably after the break. I wanted to bring up one other thing here. In the year uh, 2 BC, which marked the 25th anniversary of Caesar Augustus as the Savior and Son of God, and the Apotheos, the appointer of gods throughout the empire. If, those, if you look up point, uh, Apotheos at preparing you, if you want to know what that means. But he was actually, that was one of the offices he held. And it was also the 750th anniversary of the founding of Rome. Now, Rome had been a republic for only about 500 years. Uh, so when they're going back to 750, they're actually going back to the Etruscan kings, which we've also talked about. So you can probably look that up too, the Tarquinian kings, uh, at preparing you, and you'll find out more about that. But there was a huge celebration, uh, that was planned. And I'm, I'm quoting here from, uh, you know, uh, another source, which you can find. If you look up Augustus Caesar, you can find some of these same quotes. The, at preparing you, you'll find them. The whole uh, empire was at peace. Uh, the doors of the Temple of Janus, which often dealt with war, uh, were closed for only the third time in Roman history. And uh, the they wanted to honor the emperor. What emperor means commander in chief? That was another office that Caesar Augustus held almost entirely through his reign. He didn't always he wasn't always the apotheos, he wasn't always the Principas civitas, which are the other two offices, which we explained. But he wanted to set up an enrollment that we see in the book of Luke that brought uh, Joseph and and Mary to Bethlehem where Christ was born, was to do with this enrollment. Now we know that they went to Bethlehem and Jesus was Assumedly born in Bethlehem, evidently in the house of somebody who was fairly well off, uh, because that's why he had this whole stable underneath his house, and that's where they gave birth down in this stable. But uh, a lot of people think it was all poor and everything, but that's, we've explained that Jesus was actually from a very rich and wealthy family. Uh, But he gave up his wealth. That's what Paul says. Though he was rich, he made himself poor. And it was a part of his ministry, and there's a whole reason why that. And if you don't understand that, that's part of that context in which the gospel is written. And people just aren't telling you. uh, They're not teaching it in the seminaries. We teach it, we share it, and we have the footnotes to back up what we're saying. But as the patria of... uh, uh, I think we're going to go to a break here and in a second I'm getting different signals because we have different equipment but anyway but he was the Potter Patria enrollment fits perfectly with this event in Logan we'll be right back Welcome back to Achilles of the Kingdom. So uh, there was this enrollment of the pater patria, the father of the nation, under the father of the nation, Caesar. And that was what uh, it is very likely based on the timing and what actually took place at that time because there wasn't a regular census at that particular time. uh, And there's a lot of rationale behind it and there's a lot of people who have written about it. But I believe that whether or not this was the particular reason why they went to Bethlehem was this enrollment or not, we know that that enrollment took place where you were accepting Caesar as the father of the whole Roman Empire and as a part of that Roman Empire, he would be a man of earth called father. But we also know, according to the biblical story, that whatever was taking place in Bethlehem at that particular time, there was an angel that revealed something to Joseph in a dream that told Joseph to head south to Egypt, and he went south to Egypt. It doesn't say whether he actually got there and did the enrollment, but we know that he left town right in that period of time, and I would conjecture that it is likely he did not enroll. So therefore, he was unregistered. And there was a large group of people that were unregistered with this system of Caesar, which would allow people to get the benefits of Caesar's daily bread. And we know in another writing, and I, you can look for the footnotes of this, because again, it will be under Augustus Caesar in uh, preparing you and I'm taking those notes but I didn't take over all the footnotes so I, I think it's Andersheim is the, the historian but uh, you can look it up yourself because um, I'm just going off of memory but I'm reading the actual uh, quote from the book the annual temple tribute was allowed to be transported to Jerusalem and the Alienation of these funds by the civil magistrate treated as sacrilege. As the Jews objected to bear arms or march on the Sabbath, they were freed from military service. So what he's describing here is a number of things that Augustus put into place. Some were put into place by others, but were exemptions that were enjoyed by Jews but not necessarily by everybody. But the annual temple tribute was, they could not, if if you were going down the Appian Way and you crossed through certain uh, border checkpoints and you were carrying wagon loads of stuff, they could tax what you were carrying because you were using the Appian Way or whatever road that the Romans had built or whatever harbor the Romans had built. If you came through the harbor, you would be taxed on what you offloaded in your ship based on, in order to pay for the harbor. And this is what the Romans did. They built a harbor, they built a road, they built uh, cities, they built amphitheaters, and if you conducted events in those, they would make money off of it. Romans were capitalists. They wanted to make money. At least they were at first. And Then they became more and more socialist. It was a gradual change, but it eventually brought down the fall of Rome. But anyway, this idea of, of uh, being a sacrilege to take away anything out of funds that were on their way to the temple as tribute to the temple, which would be the tithings from all the people. They couldn't take any of that. They couldn't touch that. That would be sacrilege. To take that. By the order of Caesar. And this order actually comes from a lot of other uh, locations we find it. In, and it goes on to say, uh, on similar grounds, they were not obliged to appear in courts of law on their holy days. So if you were summoned to a Roman court and it was a Jewish holy day, you didn't have to go. Augustus even ordered... That when the public distribution of corn, which would be grain, because they didn't have corn there, but this is the way it's translated. Or the money that they sometimes distributed among the citizens fell on the Sabbath. The Jews were to receive their share on the following day. But it's only the Jews that were registered accepting Caesar as the pater patria, father of the nation. But a lot of the Jews did accept that and were registered to get those benefits. And and they may have to pay in because they're registered some token tax. Most of the funds didn't come from the poor people. It came from, you know, like we explained with Julius Caesar before he became the emperor of Rome, but he was a commander in chief of the army that went to Gaul. He captured almost a million Gauls and sold them into slavery, making them one of the richest men in the Roman Empire. And he bestowed... Of course, this was a war crime, but he bestowed the profits from this slave venture of enslaving their neighbors. He bestowed the profits from them on the temples to provide more of that free bread and coin and corn or grain. To the citizens. And the citizens said, oh, we love Caesar. And, and you know, I equated it with, you know, stimulus checks. I'm going to send you all a check for $1,500. Yay, hail Caesar. Wonderful guy. But it's altering the character of the people when you do this. It's altering their incentive to work. It's altering their incentive to accomplish. Because they're getting money for free and they don't want to know where the money came from and, and they, they don't care anymore that it, it's the product of war crimes they, they're not interested this is what was happening at the time of Jesus Christ but what, one of the things I wanted to point out in this as he goes on he talks about uh, the founder of Antioch which was Seleucus, uh, had also uh, confirmed a decree that granted the Jews the right uh, of citizenship in all the cities of Asia Minor and Syria, uh, which he had built. And and the privileges of receiving, instead of oil, because that's one of the things they handed out as part of their daily ministration, their welfare system, they would give out oil, and if they gave you free oil, you didn't have to buy oil, that was distributed amongst the people which the Jews, their religion, forbade them to use because it wasn't kosher oil. They don't know who put it together or who made it. So they couldn't use that oil. They were able to take, and and we have sites to show you exactly where this is written in ancient documents, that was equivalent in money. So the Jews could actually go and get money for free from the government to go buy their own oil or to buy whatever they wanted, as a part of the welfare system set up by men like Caesar Augustus and uh, Seleucus and and other people throughout the Roman Empire, and they were the idea that they were granted citizenship in all the cities that this guy founded throughout Asia Minor meant that the Jews were all over every place. Yet they wanted to be attached to their own temple, which was doing some of the same things. Herod had set up the same type of system of registration with the temple and, and he actually did it when you were registering with the temple in Jerusalem. You would actually be baptized to register with the temple in Jerusalem. Herod had it because that was a Jewish tradition. So you were baptized and registered. They would send out missionaries. To that, And we have quotes showing you where this is actually a part of the history of the times. And then you could get benefits. And you could be anywhere. You could be in Asia Minor. You could be uh, in Syria. You could be in all these places and you could get benefits because you were registered. And you would just go to the local synagogues and you show that I'm registered here and I, and they had records and they could check this out. You could try to commit fraud. But they actually had... Sometimes stones, sometimes little clay, uh things that the Romans would call a tessera to identify you. And, of course, you you gave your name and all this stuff. And when you got baptized, they gave you a Hebrew name. And the Hebrew letters are corresponding to numbers. Every Hebrew letter has a corresponding number. So it literally, that name spelled out a number. And that was your number, your unique number. And that meant you could get the benefits by way of your local synagogue that was funded by the temple in Jerusalem. Now, Herod had set up a similar system with the Temple of Roma for those people who didn't want the Jewish traditions. But all those who liked the Jewish traditions, they would register. But not everybody registered. Some people didn't register. You can look up our article, Are Christians Idiots? (laughs) (laughs) which is a a play on words. But actually, you could probably look up the word idiotes, which actually means registered. And we explain that the apostles were idiotes. They were unregistered. It didn't mean they were unlearned, that they couldn't read or write. It meant that they were unregistered. And it very specifically means that, we have footnotes to back that up, but anyway, back to this. Caesar was loved. Uh, he he was loved throughout the Roman Empire by many people. Of course, there's always somebody who doesn't like him and would like to, you know, revolt. But generally speaking, he was loved by the Jews. And when he died, the mourning is written that the mourning of the people... Uh, and the melodies, the psalms that they sang on behalf of of Augustus Caesar uh, in their dirges because they mourned the loss because he had been such a benefactor to the people, giving them free oil free bread uh, money, uh, protection he was loved and business boomed under the Romans because the Romans were all capitalists and and he was loved, but there were drawbacks. There were bad things that were happening too, and uh, and people objected to that. So, as this body of their benefactor and, uh, had been burnt and and carried to you know uh, the streets uh, in these uh, pathetic funeral dirges to commemorate the loss of this loved uh, Augustus Caesar. Uh, there were also people who hated him, and because there were problems developing, eventually there would be inflation, there would be increase in prices, there'd be shortages of food, there would be crime in the streets, there was a degeneration of morals, and, and of course that's why you had people rising up and and killing, stabbing Julius Caesar. Before he even became the first emperor. He never became the first emperor. And then of course this created a civil war and Augustus and all this stuff. But then there was another attempt to return to the values of the Republic, even though Augustus promised that. But under Caligula there was another, and they, they tried to kill everybody in the royal family so there would be no more emperors, no more principas civitas, and they'd go back to the, to the Republic. But then they pulled Claudius out of a closet or behind a curtain, and the Praetorian Guard made him emperor and protected him, kind of like what we have today. We have somebody in the White House of the United States that a lot of people think doesn't have a right to it. Of course, a lot of people think he does, and there's this huge debate, but he's there and protected by the modern-day Praetorian Guard who is protecting the modern-day Claudius uh, who is... There. So, I mean, it's not an exact parallel, but the principles are still there. The men who have gotten power because the emperors gave them power. Tiberius did it. He gave the real power to the Praetorian Guard, uh, and, and made suspicion a crime and all this stuff. And then followed by Caligula, who was just absolutely immoral and imba- a, a base individual. And then he was, uh, assassinated. And they thought they were rid of these emperors and these rulers. But the problem was, is they had not learned the message of Christ. And this is where we have to get to. What is the doctrine of Jesus Christ that would set men free? And what was the doctrine that, or the failings in the doctrine of Caesar, as well as the doctrine of Caesar, that brings men into bondage? What are those two distinctions? Because, In that, we find out what real Christianity is and what apostate Christianity is. But we have to look at things and not be governed by names and words, but be governed by the truth, the actual logos, the rationale of God. That's what the logos is. It's the reasoning of God, the divine reasoning of God. And, And we talked about this There is Logos, uh, Pathos, and Ethos. Ethos has to do with you think this person is your savior. Pathos has to do with an emotional feeling that if we go this way, things will turn out okay. And then Logos is the actual facts, the actual rationale. And a lot of people have no interest in facts. And that's a sign they have no interest in reason. And they will come up with all kinds of crazy ideas. And we can fight each one of those crazy ideas and think that we're making progress. No. What we want to do is immerse ourselves in the rationale of God. Not our reasoning, but the actual understanding of God. The revelation. We can only understand God through revelation. So we want to immerse ourselves in the revelation of God. Now, there's a lot of people over there on the pathos side, the emotional side. They think they're listening to the Holy Spirit, but it's actually just emotion. And, but they're sure that it's the Holy Spirit. And Christ warns about this, that there will be all kinds of people that think they believe in him, but they're actually workers of iniquity. They think they're following Jesus. Many will do this, he says. But they're actually not doers of the word. They're not actually doers of the logos. They're not following the rationale of God. And I say rationale in that you don't get to God by reasoning. You get to God by revelation. But when you get there, you'll realize how reasonable God was all along. <laughs> because there is an actual logic to God. You can't find God with your logic any more than Adam and Eve could find out what was good and evil through their logic, they could find out what good and evil was by eating of the tree of life, by walking in the Spirit of God. But they couldn't walk in the Spirit of God because the Spirit of God was full of light, and they ran from the Spirit of God. We see the same thing with Moses. Moses you know, he couldn't look at God, but he looked through the crevice because he couldn't look on the face of God. It was just too light even for him. But the more he conversed with God, the more he actually shone the light himself. And they had to put a cloth over his head because people couldn't even look at Moses. You know, so I I mean, that's the, what the story says. And And the people were supposed to come up the mountain at least enough to hear God in their own hearts and minds. That's revelation. But they wouldn't do it. They were too afraid. They would not, for the most part, they would not hear God in their hearts and minds. So God made a covenant with these people that was short of what he wanted the covenant to be. But the people weren't ready. Their hearts were too hard. He had to write on stone instead of on their hearts. And then they talk about in Jeremiah and in um, Hebrews... That, uh, in Hebrew, that, uh, Hebrews, that there is a new covenant where I shall write my laws upon their hearts and upon their minds. But the way God does that is not through emotion. It's not through sending, uh, individuals that have great charisma and personification and you think that, you know, Billy Graham is my savior or, or Donald Trump is my savior or, Uh, whatever famous person is out there that they're going to fix things. No, he's going to write his will, his logos, the word, on your hearts individually and on your minds individually. And unless you really begin to understand the doctrine of Jesus, that's not going to happen because there's too much stuff there. You have to set down the stuff that's already in your heart and your mind in order to receive the Holy Spirit. If, you, if you're if you so prideful that you think you already got it, you're not going to get it. So this brings me to another quote of Cicero, who was dealing with a lot of these same problems. Uh, and, and I'm not holding up Cicero to follow him. I'm sh- holding up Cicero to show the struggle that these guys were having in relationship to the struggles Peter was having. Or Paul was having, or the apostles were having, or Christians were having, the Roman Christians, uh, the struggle they were having. He says, do not blame Caesar. Blame the people of Rome who have so enthusiastically acclaimed and adored him and rejoiced in their loss of freedom and danced in his path and gave him Uh, triumphal processions and laughs and delightedly at his licentiousness and thought it very superior of him to acquire vast amounts of gold illicitly, which we see Julius Caesar doing. By war crimes, he accumulated huge amounts of gold in the slave markets where he sold all these skulls. Killed most of the men, but the young men And the women and the children, he sold them all into slavery all over the Mediterranean. He says, blame the people who hail him when he speaks in the form of the new wonderful good society. Because see, they had a new deal back then. Caesar was bringing them their new deal, their great society, you know, their good society. Same works. Just, You know, this is the translations from the Latin. Now, to be fair in this quote that I'm reading, it was attributed to Marcus Tullius Cicero, but it is probably not literally something he said. This was actually said by the Florida Supreme Court Justice uh, Millard uh, Caldwell in a speech back in 1965. It's been attributed to Cicero, and what it actually is is Caldwell's paraphrase of Cicero and the people of the times. And it wasn't meant, it was in a speech, it wasn't meant to be a direct quote, but it's often attributed as a direct quote. But we can look at all kinds of things that Cicero says to see that this is actually the case, and I've kind of led you into that a little bit, because uh, he, he talks about, you know, as he talks about this new wonderful good society, this new deal, This great society, which shall now be Rome's interpreted to mean more money, more ease, more security, more living fatly at the expense of the industrious. So this is what that quote was. It's probably, again, not a direct quote from Cicero or Caesar or any of those people there, but it is a compilation of what we see in history for those who actually study history, and evidently, uh, Millard Caldwell uh, did study some history, and he was right in his conclusions concerning what was going on at that time. Now, Jesus was also promising eternal life and security, salvation. That's what salvation means, is Security. But his method was much different than Caesar. And again, to look at Cicero also said, the evil was not in the bread and circuses, because this is actually his his quote, per se, but in the willingness of the people to sell their rights as free men for a full belly and the excitement of the games which would serve to distract them from other human hungers which bread and circuses can never appease. What what does the Bible say? What does the doctrine of Jesus say? I give you a bread, a different kind of bread? Man does not live by bread alone. Cicero saying the same thing. There is another bread more important than the bread that you receive as the welfare of Rome and the welfare of Caesar. He, he is understanding that. Now he, I'm not saying he was a Christian, but he's in conflict. And this is what's so important is a lot of people saying they're Christians. They have a lot of the characteristics of Christ. A lot, they accept a lot of the things that Christ said, a lot of the doctrines of Christ, but they don't accept the whole truth. And the re- the reality is, in the days to come, you need the whole truth. And in order to see the whole truth, you have to see the whole truth about you, about yourself. Because it's yourself that must receive the writing of the Holy Spirit upon your heart and your mind. That, you have to be in a humble place, a meek place already. You can't think you got it that you, you've figured it out. You can't imagine that you've got it already and then ha- be humble enough to receive the true finger of God in your heart and your mind. So we're gonna have to take a look at that when we come back to keys of the Kingdom. I guess we're about ready to go to another break based on what I'm looking at yet.
1: you can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net.
0: Well, welcome back to the Kingdom. So, it wasn't the bread and circuses themselves that caused the problem. I I recently having a discussion with somebody named Artis on uh, Facebook and trying to explain these things to him, which I, I don't know if he, he's going to get it. I always have hope that somebody's going to get it and, and figure it out. But I can see his resistance. I can see where he tries to navigate around the truth. And that helps me see what other people are doing to navigate around the truth they need to see. They see this truth, yes. They see that truth, yes. They see this doctrine of Christ. They see that doctrine of Christ. But they don't see this one over here. And they need to see this one over here. This is becoming perfected in Christ. Because, see, if you, if you say that you believe in the doctrine of Christ, 100% I believe in the doctrine of Christ. But you don't really accept all the doctrine of Christ, some of the essentials even, of the doctrine of Christ. Then you don't believe in Christ. Because there is only one doctrine, like I said at the beginning of the show. The guy who thought, no, there aren't doctrines of Christ. Well, there is, in a sense, because that's not, it's not wrong that there is one doctrine. But, you know, it is also correct that there are doctrines. There are elements of the doctrines. There are many elements. That would be a better way of saying it. Again, we're dealing with worse. There are numerous elements to the single doctrine of Christ. And those different elements will be called the doctrines of Christ if you stack them all up. But if you remove some of them, it's no longer the singular doctrine of Christ. This is at this principle that I just described there, and you can kind of see in a metaphor, you know, you stack them up is the difference between monotheistic and polytheistic gods. The gods of the Teutons, the gods of Rome, there were these multiple gods. And and yeah, there were a lot of pagans that believed in those multiple gods, but there were a lot of good men that believed in those multiple gods. But they looked at those multiple gods as each one representing a certain characteristic of the God creator of us all. And, you know, like one characteristic would be courage, another characteristic would be compassion, another characteristic would be uh perseverance. You know, Christ said to persevere. And so, that's a characteristic. And so, a person can be, you know, a lot of things, a lot of these different elements that we would call virtues, you know, the seven virtues. And... That But there may be only five of those virtues and two of them are missing. And those two of them will be his downfall, his Achilles heel. These are principles they're talking about. You want the whole doctrine of Christ, not just part of the doctrine of Christ. Because part of the doctrine of Christ is not going to lead you in the way of righteousness. So we see that this idea of Uh, of God and this wholeness of God is very important and the idea that you know that there was something wrong with the bread and circuses of Rome is also tied into what was wrong with the Corban of the Pharisees the Corban of the Pharisees was making the word of God to none effect Jesus said this and he was literally sound like he was condemning the Pharisees because their Corban was making the word of God to none effect why was their Corbin making the Word of God to none effect? The word korban is from the Hebrew word korban, which means to sacrifice, or an offering. That's what it meant. It was, it was something you gave up. It was a sacrifice. But their sacrifice was making the Word of God to none effect. Why was their sacrifice doing that? And somebody else's sacrifice, like a widow's mite, was not doing that. It was actually making the Word of God to effect which would be the Corbin of Christ. Well, what was the distinction between these two sacrifices? Well, one was because you were registered with the temple and you had to give in. Now, this creates a gray area. Okay, you have to give in to the temple because you're registered. Maybe your parents registered you or whatever. And now you're, you know, you started learning fishing from your father. Now you're really doing a good job fishing. You're making lots of money. And fish are coming in on a day. You have to give a portion of that. You have to, by law, by contract. Because you have a covenant with the temple. And it's required that you make that sacrifice. Just like Rome was doing this. Uh, Annually, you had to make a sacrifice. The heads of the families... The elders of the families that's what an elder was, the head of a family, had to make a sacrifice at the temple, burn incense, and then you give money when you burn incense, and accept the fact that Caesar was the son of God, that he was your savior. That's what you did in their temple. And their temple provided you with the social welfare of your society, the need of your society. And that's what the temple did over there for Herod. It did it through this network of synagogues. Ten families in every synagogue, and then those synagogues gathered together, and they had a whole system of record keeping, so that you know if a synagogue had to hand out stuff to you, and you were actually a member of another synagogue, they could put in for reimbursement, kind of like you know when you write checks, you write. Used to be this the way they did. It's all electronic now, but you'd write a check on this bank, and 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 the guy would write a check on this bank, and and then they would they would make it all, they wouldn't necessarily move the money from every bank, they would kind of equalize it all out. But now it's all digital and happens in a flash and doesn't happen very well, another whole subject and topic. But the reality is, is this was a system of social welfare that was making the word of God to none effect because it was not based on charity. And see, charity, which is the same word for love, Love is a positive force. It is the light of love of Christ, not just of Christ, but the love that Christ has in us. It is that positive force that brings us up to a level where we can get nearer God, which is why the word Corbin actually comes from a Hebrew word that means to draw near that yeah, your sacrifice draws you near the source of life. It, it doesn't... You don't earn the source of life. You, know, you don't do anything that will earn you or God owes you, but by the nature of your sacrifice, which is by the nature of the character of Christ in you, because that's what Christ came to teach us, is how to sacrifice, how to lay down our life for our fellow man so that we can pick up life more abundantly, If we don't practice that charity, that sacrifice, that love on a daily basis, not only for ourselves, for our neighbor, for our family, and for casting our bread upon the waters for people we don't even know they're on the other side, they're over in Syria, or they're over in Corinth, or wherever they're at. If we're not doing that, it's not going to draw us near the Holy Spirit where God can write upon our hearts and our minds. We haven't really repented. If we're thinking like Caesar, that it's okay to force your neighbor, whether it be Gauls or, you know, uh, Arabs or, <laughs> I don't know, whoever, to contribute to your welfare, your, anybody, to contribute. If, if you think that's a good thing, then you're not thinking like Christ. You're, you're not, if you're not thinking like Christ, you have need of repentance because repentance is thinking differently thinking and it's only i mean you could repent of thinking like christ and start thinking like caesar but that's not the repentance i'm i'm talking about the repentance i'm talking about is when you stop thinking like caesar and start thinking like christ and start seeing the value that sacrifice draws me near god and makes in humility makes me more available to the Holy Spirit writing upon my heart and my mind. But if you're going to accept the pathos, the emotion of modern churches or modern religions, over that of the logos of Christ, the rationale of God, the reasoning of God, the divine will, that's another way of saying the reasoning of God is the divine will of God. And this is what Christ is saying, not my will, but thine be done. If you're saying your will, not God's will, then you're not going to hear the Holy Spirit. Even if he tried to write on your heart and your mind, you're not going to hear it. So you're going to look for a substitute, and you will look for substitutes like pathos, an emotional feeling. And you'll go to a church that gives you that emotional feeling. Or you'll read stuff or listen to stuff that gives you that emotional feeling. But maybe it won't be just pathos. Maybe you'll also need ethos. You'll need some person, you know like i said like Billy Graham i'm just using his name he's passed on uh Franklin Graham uh or i can not i just can't remember all their names you know them. i don't i don't want to give them credit but they're they're these charismatic figures that draw thousands of people want to hear what they have to say they don't talk about the bible they don't tell you what it means they don't talk about sacrifice they just tell you that that they are actually often appealing also to pathos, but you need that person that that you hold up on a pedestal or a pulpit. And, and this can be on a little level, like in your local congregation. You may have a congregation of 20 or 30 people. You still got that guy in the pulpit, and he loves to be in that pulpit. He loves to have everybody listen to him as if he is the source of the Word of God. I am not the source of the Word of God. The Word of God you need to hear will be written on your heart and your mind. I'm just saying, what keeps you from hearing from the Holy Spirit? What makes the slate in your soul and in your mind so that God can't write on it? Makes it too hard. Makes it too cluttered. Too full of confusion. It's the fact that you don't sacrifice daily. You don't love daily. Same word, sacrifice. Same word, Charity, charity is sacrifice. Same word, love. In the Greek, same word for charity, same word for love. And if you're not loving your neighbor, not, and, and not, we're not talking pathos love, we're not talking emotional love, we're actually talking real love. I mean, like if, if you just love your children emotionally, but don't actually breastfeed them and, You know, or buy them formula if you can get formula. Or keep them clean and and, uh, take care of them and educate them. Which all takes sacrifice. That's the manifestation of love. Is that if you're not doing that, they're going to die. They're not going to survive. So it's the same way if you want the Holy Spirit to enter into your heart. You're not going to earn it. It's still going to be a gift. Got that? I'm not saying you don't earn salvation through your good works. I'm saying, if you really have faith, the good works will come. You know, if you really love your kid, the sacrifice will come. Nature will call for it. Because things happen. But this is why all the prophets, all the prophets, and Christ warn that we are not to go to the men who call themselves benefactors but exercise authority for any of our social welfare, for the benefits of society. We should not go to those men who take away from our neighbor to provide us with wealth. It isn't that you use an EBT card to get something. It's the fact that you're not loving one another. You're taking a bite out of one another. You may be using the teeth of government to do it. But this is going to alter the nature of your society. Go read our article on Polybius. He saw it 150 years before Christ. He saw it before John the Baptist, because he was before. But it, it was seen by thousands of men, millions of men, before Polybius saw it. He, just, he was writing it down. So we have a copy of his quote. That the, It's the masses and their appetite for benefits at the expense of others and depending for their livelihood on the property of others, that institutes this rule of force, force contributions, that degenerates the people into perfect savages, who are not going to receive the revelation of God, not going to receive, the, it's going to make the Corbin, the sacrifice that they make, to no none effect in the spiritual realm of the Creator. And they will sit in darkness, because light will not come in. To where they sit, they have to see that their covetous practices, which has made them merchandise. Eating the dainties of rulers, as it says in Proverbs. It says that if, if you have an appetite for the dainties of rulers, if you sit and eat with a ruler and you be a man of appetite and he serves you these dainties, which he, Proverbs tells us is deceitful means, that it, it will lead to your destruction. Proverbs tells you this, the, the, the common purse, where we don't own anything. We're not capitalists anymore. We don't own what we produce. It all belongs to somebody else who gets to just divide the bread. I mean, the apostles divided, rightly divided the bread from house to house, but the bread was freely given because it is essential for the individual to choose to walk in the ways of God, to walk in the ways of Christ, to sacrifice for his fellow man. Not with hope of immediate reward from this individual. You know, like I gave you 50 bucks, so you better be there for me. No, no. Christ talks about that. You know, you, you do, the sacrifice has to be given freely. And, and And not as a quid pro quo. We've heard that in the news. Otherwise, it's not going to have the same effect. So all the problems in the world today can be traced back to the fact that modern religion ignores the commandment not to covet your neighbor's goods. Especially through men who exercise authority. Because the only way they're going to do it for you is that you make a covenant with them, a contract with them. You have to make a covenant with their ruling judges that if I agree to pay you this little amount every time I make money... You will guarantee me welfare, social security, you know, social insurance. And, and you'll give me an identifier so you can tell who I am. Herod was doing this. He was giving them literally a number, a Hebrew name carved on a stone. And this was your identifier. And that Hebrew name had letters, and each of those letters represented a number, so all together you could just write out a number and if you were using. Uh, Arabic numerals, you could just write out a number and you had that number and you could go to any synagogue that was connected to this temple. But of course, Paul eventually calls this the synagogue of devils, the synagogue in Revelation of Satan. Because they're not operating by love. They're operating by force. And a lot of people say, we don't care where the check comes from. We just want our benefit. You know, I paid in. I got right to it. I I don't care that it's broke. I still want, want what I want. And I don't care who it hurts. And you expect the Holy Spirit to write upon their hearts and their minds. Now, I understand that people are often in a multitude of places. One foot may be on one side of the equation and one foot on the other side and they're still trying to figure out, do not straddle the fence too long, my friends. Choose this day who you will serve. Because if you choose to serve the ways of Caesar, now you may still owe the tax, you may still owe, you may have to pay your telly of bricks, I'm not trying to get anybody out of paying their taxes, I'm just saying, the system will fail. The system will fall. You need to be seeking the kingdom of God and His righteousness, which is based, a social welfare system based on love. And it's not only that it's a lot more than that another quote is nothing so absurd can be said that some philosopher had not said it <laughs> Already. I, can't, I can give you that in, in latin but i won't i won't bore you with my my latin pronunciation because i'm i would have to either use classical or church latin <laughs> and i'm sure it was said in classical latin but uh, you know, this is, this is a statement by Cicero. Cicero also said, uh, a room without books is like a body without a soul. And, and it doesn't have to be books, but without knowledge. In, in the Bible tells says, yea, but for the lack of knowledge. And so I'm giving you some knowledge about those times and what was going on. Uh, and, and the mistakes that men make. And, and what we should do about it. And, of course, I'm equating it with the doctrine of Jesus Christ. And this is why Christ commanded that his disciples make the people sit down in the tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands. A lot of people say, well, it doesn't say tens. Well, the word there in the Greek is symposium and symposia were were ten men. I mean, that's, that's what it was in Greece, and that's what it stood for. So you could put the word tens there, but the... They're talking about companies, what kind of companies, how much ten? Is it a magical number? Could it be twelve? Could it be eight? Yeah, that's not the important. The important thing is why you're sitting down in that network is to learn to love one another. Religion hundred just a hundred years ago, two hundred years ago was defined as the pious performance of a duty. Your duty was to love your neighbor as yourself. Not love them pathosly, emotionally, but in a rational way that makes a difference. In other words, help take care of the needy so your neighbor didn't die, didn't starve, and 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 that he was also strengthened. Because you just want to give to everybody who doesn't want to work. He may be starving because he doesn't want to work. Well, you want to encourage him to work because work is what keeps us happy. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we are meant to work, to dress it and keep it. So, we make these mistakes, and we've made them since the days of the garden. And to understand that knowledge, to understand the history before, to understand the context in which the gospel was written, to understand where the conflict between the Christians, who, if, if, Pios and Flavius were the authors of the Bible as some, Uh, fictional historians uh, claim, then Christians would have been model citizens and there'd been no reason to persecute them. But they said there was another king and they wrote in Apologies in 150 AD that this is how we do it. We meet every week and those that have extra share with those that don't have enough. People say, well, that's not in the Bible. Well, it is in the Bible. John the Baptist said that if your neighbor has... No coat, and you have one share. Do the same in me. That's the same statement. Now, the fact that he didn't say do it every week, well, Jews were already meeting every week. They were already meeting in groups of ten because synagogues are groups of ten. They don't have to say that. They already know that. Two times knew it. They were doing it. The Athenians were doing it. They were doing it. But the difference was that either you were Providing for the needy of your society through love or through force. Through sacrifice or through biting one another. Now you tell me, what are you doing today in your society? Are you providing for one another through faith, hope, and charity, or force and fear and fealty? You're making... I, we know that, you know, Biden supposedly just hired 80,000 new IRS, IRS, IRS agents. They're not operating in love. They're operating by force. But you instituted that system. Your parents, your grandparents instituted that system of force way back. And you did it because you were accustomed to receiving these benefits by taking away from your neighbor. The habit of receiving them at the expense of others. And so, it was okay to institute the rule of force. I have to pay in, you have to pay. But the apostles were unregistered. They were doing something completely different. They were operating by real charity, by real faith. All the social welfare of a Christian. That was pure religion. Taking care of the needy of your society in a way that strengthens them through faith, hope, and church. You will get a different kind of person when you follow the son of God known as Jesus. But if you follow the son of God known as Caesar, you'll get another kind of person that will lead to the decline and fall of the Roman Empire and the rise of a new world order of a, of a Great reset. And you will be able to do nothing about it. They will be able to come into your community and force everybody to wear masks. And if if the businesses don't force you to wear masks, they will find the businesses until they run them out of business. They will shut them down. They will say, oh, that will never happen. Already happened. And you can do anything about it because you are not organized. In the system of tens, hundreds, and thousands, someone keeps saying, you're saying that I will be more spiritually awake if I organize in the tens, hundreds, and thousands? No. I never said that. I said that you will be drawn near to the finger of God that will write upon your heart and your mind and your soul if you follow the ways of Christ. In a way, the way, that's what Christianity was called. The way of Christ was a way of... Loving your neighbor as yourself. And we know love requires sacrifice. Ask every mother. Ask every good father. Love requires sacrifice. I mean, uh, we're on our way to Wisconsin. We'll be in Wisconsin in a few days. We're, I'm in Fort Collins now. If you are already gathering the tens, hundreds, and thousands, I inform the ministers where I would be. And you could have already set up meetings with us. But if you're not sitting down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands, and you expect to only be informed by Facebook, then you probably don't know where I'm at right now. <laughs> so, but that's okay because I'm not your ethos. I'm not I'm not your leader. I'm not your charismatic figure. I'm not very charismatic. As a matter of fact, I'm the opposite opposite of a tier, ear tickler. Uh, I'm kind of thumping you that you need to follow the ways... The real ways of Christ. The whole ways of Christ. And the only practical way to do it is to do it as Christ commanded, which is to sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands so that you can actually love your neighbor as yourself in a way that's efficient. And, and a way that is the most common way that free governments gather. You know, Marcus Tullius Cicero, also a pagan, a pagan, but I'm, I'm showing you contrast, show you what the difference is. He had six mistakes mankind keeps making throughout the centuries, after century, keeps making. That's what he saw. <coughs> do any of these correlate? Do any do any of these correlate with the mistakes that Christ and the prophets told us that we made? What what were the mistakes that we were constantly making? Well, of course, we see it somewhere in the Ten Commandments, which are actually the ten statements. That are guiding us in the ways of God, in the logos of God. But we'll have to talk about that when we come back to keep religion. Okay, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So, what are the six mistakes that Cicero thinks mankind keeps making century after century? Now, these six will not line up perfectly with what you might put down from a biblical point of view. But this is one man's struggle with this idea. He believed that philosophy was established in order to determine what was good and what was evil. I mean, there's an actual quote in there somewhere that where I point that out. He actually states that, that that's what philosophy is, and philosophy is the study of, you know, life. But without revelation, which he writes a great deal about, he calls it divination, but he realizes there is some sort of revelation that we receive beyond what we can physically observe, that somehow... You know it, whether it's in dreams, which we see constantly in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. We just talked about Joseph getting a dream that says, "Head to Egypt, get out of there." Uh, basically, I believe he was saying, "Don't get registered <laughs> with Caesar as your father," and 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 they they headed south. It wasn't just to escape Herod, but it was to escape this whole system. And there are people that have escaped this system, but the only reason to escape the system, if you have the love of Christ, is to help other people. Moses escaped Egypt. He was the rightful heir to the throne of Egypt. I pointed this out. He, he was the rightful heir to the throne of Pharaoh. He was to be called Tutin Moses. That's what the Pharaoh was called. Tutin Moses. But the Israelites didn't call him Moses because he was the rightful heir to the throne that took in Moses, but because he was drawn from the water. He was born again. And he left Egypt, not because he was afraid the Pharaoh would kill him, but because the power of the Pharaoh would decimate his soul, that It would turn him into a tyrant. And we've gone through this in detail. I don't want to go through the whole thing again because we won't get through the six things that we all keep making mistakes about. But the reality is, is that power corrupts. Moses realized that power corrupts and as the rightful heir to the throne of Pharaoh, he was being corrupted. He was starting to value life of others or he would take somebody's life away from them. We do that on a minuscule scale, but it's a part of those mistakes that we keep making, so I'm still on topic here, is that we are willing to take life away from our neighbors so that we may have life more abundant. When Christ says we lay down our life to have life more abundant, Caesar says, no, we can take life from the goals so that we can have more stimulus checks. <laughs> so that we can have more benefits at our government temples, at our elements. That's whether you go to get your free bread. It was a little building to the side of the temple. But the treasury was in the temple. All these temples had treasuries. And Jesus talks about that too because your treasure is supposed to be in the kingdom of heaven. But the kingdom of heaven is where? Where, where is your treasure if it's in the kingdom of heaven? Is it when you die? No. It's in the heart of your neighbor. <laughs> That's where the treasure is. Because the kingdom of heaven is within you. It's within your neighbor. It's within this neighbor. It's within that neighbor. Now, some neighbors don't care about the kingdom of God. They want the kingdom of the world. They want the kingdom of Caesar. They want the benefits at the expense of the Gauls and the Teutons and, and anybody else we can conquer. They want it at the neighbor down the street. They want to tax the rich man. They want to have free stuff and take it away from Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk. Even though they they are great employers of people and they're making thousands and thousands of people rich by starting these businesses. Maybe not so much Bezos, but certainly (laughs) the people that work for Elon Musk, a lot of them are doing really well. But that's these are individual things. But the point is, is that you you need to follow the ways of Christ, not the ways of Caesar. And a lot of people say they are following Jesus, but they're actually following the son of God Caesar, because their ways are not the ways of Christ, but the ways of Caesar, the ways of FDR, the ways of LBJ. What I don't want to say, I'll I'll keep to the dead (laughs) presidents. Rather than the living presidents uh, or, or any leader, I mean it's not just. I think America is a great example of all this that's happening, but it's happening in Australia, it's happening in New Zealand, it's happening in um, Bangladesh, and all these other places because these are all people, and we all have we're all making the same six mistakes or ten mistakes, violating the ten statements and the Ten Commandments, which we've done whole shows. You go listen to our shows on that, and we'll give you a different insight. And you, you, you ask the Holy Spirit if we're right or not. You know, I don't want to convince you because I'm more logical than the other guy. I, yeah, I will use logic, but you're only going to know if you let the Holy Spirit show you what is true. You're not going to figure out what is good and evil with your brain. Each of you must receive the revelation of God. Each of you do, to some degree. Each of you need to do so more and more. And the way to do that is to follow the way of God, the way of Christ, the way of love, the way of charity, the way of hope, not entitlement. So anyway, first one. Believing that personal gain, personal gain, is made by crushing others. Or let's say, by taking away from others. It's the old red button thing. You push the button, somebody somewhere in the world, this is an old Twilight Zone or Outer Limits, probably Twilight Zone. Sorry, but it's an older story than that. You push this button and somebody somewhere you don't even know will die. But you'll get a billion dollars. You'll become a billionaire. And Do you push the button? And, of course, that's the whole story. And they push the button and ding-dong, the bell rings and a guy comes in with a check with a million dollars, billion dollars, whatever inflation is at your particular time. And you get the check. And then they take the button, the box with the button, and they start going out and they say, where are you taking that? Oh, we're going to give it to somebody that absolutely does not know who you are. (laughs) (laughs) Which means they will get the chance to push the button and you will die. You know, it's, it's inferred by the story. You can, you know, fill in the blanks. And you know now that that button, when they push that button, you will die. And at their choice. And you don't have any complaint. You, you, you can argue about it and everything, but you thought that was okay. You thought it was okay that if I push this button and take away from the life from my neighbor and I get rich, that's okay. You made the law. You judged that was okay. As you judge, so shall ye be judged. So if you believe that personal gain is made possible by taking away from somebody else, things will be taken away from you. You make yourself subject to that rule because you're willing to subject your neighbor to that rule. What's the alternative? Lay down your life for your fellow man. Willingly. You're dead already. You're willing to sacrifice yourself for others. Now, you get to choose how to do that. And hopefully, I pray hopefully, you will depend upon the revelation of the Holy Spirit. But what about the other five mistakes? Now, again, this is not perfectly biblical. We're just going off of Cicero's contemplations and and philosophies and ideas. But we're going to see how this fits into the Bible. We certainly see the first one does. Because you're not to covet your neighbor's goods. That's in the ten statements. Anything that is your neighbor's, you're not to covet, you're not to desire if you're pushing the red button, you desire something that was your neighbor's so that you can have something for free. Now, we do it every day. If you've got a student alone, they're doing it all the time. Anyway, number two worrying about things that cannot be changed or corrected. You think you're going to fix the world? You think you, you know, if we elect this ethos, this person this you know biden will fix it trump will fix it obama will fix it george washington will fix it no because the kingdom of heaven is within you that's what you have to fix you have to fix your own heart your own mind it's kind of the message of the jordan peterson psychologist you know fix your own house he needs to do that too But he's contemplated these things and he says a lot of things that are very close to Christianity. Surprisingly, He doesn't have all the words down right. He certainly hasn't got the Bible all figured out. But he's thinking about it. We get to watch his individual journey. I love to watch the individual journey because he started a socialist. Thomas Sowell started a communist. He isn't one now. But... He started there. And his journey can teach us where we need to go to avoid those six mistakes. So worrying about things you cannot fix, you know, global warming, (laughs) you know, global. What are you going to do about global global warming on Mars or global warming on Saturn? Because there's global warming there. It's not SUVs, I can guarantee you. It's not SUVs driving around on Mars that is causing global warming. But there's warming there. So wh- who's doing that? You know, that's part of the message of Christ. It's in the message of Christ, what's going on on Mars now, if you, if you learn to discern in the Spirit. But we'll go on to number three. Insisting that the, a thing is impossible because we cannot accomplish it. Boy, that is a a fistful of information. You're thinking something's impossible because we cannot accomplish it. Well, there's a broader look at that. I always remember when, and this is the thought that comes to me in a story, when I started working for French debarking out in Wisconsin, which is where we're headed is Wisconsin. Well, I was up in, well, I was actually up farther than Spoon River, up near Rhineland somewhere when I started, but we moved down to Spooner and Shell Lake, and that's where my first son was born. But I worked for French Debarking, running a debarker, and there was a gasket that he wanted me to make on what they call the pineapple rollers, and he asked me, can you make a gasket that would seal this pineapple roller and hold it so that the seals would not be lost, and it had to be out of real tough rubber. So I cut it with a pocket knife out of a special piece of rubber and we and eventually fit it in there and it worked it never was replaced as long as I worked with him and he said I've been trying to get somebody to cut that for years and years expert machinists and everything they said it couldn't be done and you did it well I was certainly no extra expert machinist I'd never done any work like this before and I says well see that's the value of hiring somebody who doesn't know what can be done and can't be done. If I knew it couldn't be done, I wouldn't have done it. But I didn't know it couldn't be done, so I did it. So that, that's part of that message. But he says insist, insisting that things, a thing is impossible because we cannot accomplish it is a suggestion that there is some other forces in the universe. Now we know there are other people that can help us. You know, you say, well, I gotta lift this up and carry it over there, you go over and lift it up. And somebody just told me a story about somebody a woman had a stroke in a car. Her car was, you know, shut, doors were locked, and I mean she was driving and somebody driving next to her saw she was having the stroke, drove up next to her and realized she was having the stroke and she was slowing down and her car was she wasn't pushing on the gas anymore, but the car was still moving. And he ran, drove out ahead and jumped out of his car and ran along and started to try to stop the car with his hands. Other people did the same thing. They saw this guy doing it. And they they ran over and they started grabbing the car. Now, it's just idling along. And so they were able to slow it down and actually stop it. He reached in his pocket. He had one of those deals to break out the window that he carries, my, I, I just found out my son carries one of those all the time, too, in <laughs> his pocket knife. He was a knife sharper, so he always carries a knife. And he busted out the window and was able to get into the passenger side and stop the car. Most people say, well, you can't stop that car. He didn't care that it was impossible that he stopped the car. He started to try to stop the car, and other people came. And and you have to, you can't say, well, it's impossible to have a, a government that operates on faith, hope, and charity. It will never work. It will never happen. That's one of the six mistakes of Cicero. <laughs> you don't believe. You only believe by signs and wonders. Blessed are those who believe without the signs and wonders. They know it's impossible, but they do it anyway. That's what you need to be. But we need to keep the along here because I'm going to run out of time before I get to all six. Refusing to set aside trivial preferences. Oh wow, there's a can of worms. You gotta say these words. You gotta say those words. You gotta, you gotta, you know, have all these, you know, wear this outfit. Wear this clothes. Put this doily on your head. All the things, you know, I I was thinking when we were talking about some of these other things, the oils, yeah, that was it. That the Jews didn't have to take the oils that came from Caesar as part of the free giveaways. Because they couldn't use those oils because they weren't kosher. But they could take money instead. And they said, oh, blessed Caesar, because he gives us money instead and we can go buy our our kosher oil. Well, first of all, there is no such thing as kosher oil, <laughs> as most Jews think of them today, or kosher foods or anything, as most Jews think of them today. Oil, oil is like, it's a metaphor. The virgins, the foolish virgins, who don't have any oil, and so they have no oil for their lamp, and they have to go get oil, and, it's, and they're too late to get in to... The, the The festival, the the party, because they had to go get oil, and they come knocking back because they had to go get the oil, and they're not let in. What's the oil? Oil comes from pressing your own heart. <laughs> it's a sacrifice, not crushing the heart of your neighbor, crushing others, but sacrificing yourself, laying down your life daily. So that you can pick up the oil, the life more abundant of God. Because there are two things that, at least two things that represent life in metaphor. One is breath of God. God breathed into Adam, who was from the Adama. The Adama was already here. and But Adam got the breath of life breathed into him. The same as the apostles, who were waiting there, and Jesus was dead in the tomb and everything, and all of a sudden Jesus appears and walks up to them and breathes on them. The first words out of his mouth aren't even words. Breathes on them and says, Receive the Holy Spirit. Same as with Adam. And that's what you need to do. It's not actually his brass that (laughs) receives the Holy Spirit, but it's symbolic of receiving the Holy Spirit into you. You actually breathe the air that comes out of Jesus' lungs that were in his blood moments before, and now you're breathing that air into your lungs and now mingling with your blood. It's actually going to go into your blood, and your blood is the seed of the soul. This is symbolic. These are metaphors. If you are rehearsing the metaphor, you will lose the meaning. Refusing to set aside your trivial preference to the metaphor over its meaning is a mistake. Number five, neglecting development and refinement of the mind. Okay. Who's developing and refining your mind? We have a whole article, Schools as Tools. Schools are being used to develop and refine the minds of your children. It isn't that they're just teaching them a false history and, and failing to teach them the true history or the full history. Remember, before there was fake news, there was fake good news. And you've been listening to the fake good news for centuries now. And you've been listening to it to which is one of your mistakes. And all the fake good news is, is not the whole good news. Not showing you how it completely works. So, what was the Corbin and the Pharisees doing? It was making the Word of God to none effect. The Word of God is supposed to be writing on your heart and your mind. It writes on your heart and your mind when you come to serve in the walk, in the ways of God, according to the leading of the Holy Spirit, not according to your own ambition, not according to your own will, but according to the will of God. And the will of God is that you love your neighbor as yourself. Moses said that. Jesus said that. They were both preaching the same thing. But those who would not let God write upon their hearts and their minds, who were afraid, only heard his voice as thunder or didn't hear it at all, they had to be given stones, tablets with it written on it in hopes that they would someday get it. Jesus told you, it came down to you through the scriptures, but are you actually listening to what he said or are you back to those trivial preferences of metaphors over meaning? Are you neglecting the development and refinement of your mind by sitting down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands and trying to learn what it means to live by faith, hope, and charity rather than force, fear, and fealty. So yes, using the EBT card keeps you from using the Corbin of Christ. And you need to start that shift. And the only way to do it is why Christ started with sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. And start sharing with one another as if you cared about your neighbor as much as you cared about yourself. And I say, as if. Because when you first sit down, it will be as if. You will not care about your neighbor as much as you care about yourself because you can only do that with the guidance of the Holy Spirit. But at least when you begin to walk in the ways of Christ, the Holy Spirit can now... Walk with you. If you just sit there in the pew... ...wanting your ears tickled... ...you're not walking with anybody. You're living in your imagination. Big mistake. You have to become a doer of the Word. Christ said that. Not those who just hear or say... ...but those who do with the will of the Father. And in doing the will of the Father you will not be neglecting the development and refinement of your mind and your heart and your soul. Number six, <laughs> attempting to compel others to believe or live as we do. I paid in. They have to pay in. <laughs> uh, I have to do it. You have to do it. We're going to do a video eventually. I saw it. I, it started out, I still got hundreds and hundreds of people who have, have seen it, I've made a comment on a video and we'll have to do that because I see that spirit of the people wanting to compel other people. This is the rise of savagery. Because you've become accustomed to living at the expense of others and depending for your livelihood on the property of others. You have instituted the rule of force and violence upon your neighbor, and now the red button cometh around and force and violence will be Administered to you, not merely by the government or by the IRS, but eventually foreign troops will come in here and administer. And if you think you're going to stop them with a militia that has not re the social bonds of love of Christ, you're mistaken. Because it is impossible for you to defeat the armies of Pharaoh on the shores of the Red Sea when they come down upon you. That is impossible for you to accomplish. But we, meaning you and the Holy Spirit, then that can be accomplished. So this is one of the things I I talk about all the time when we see in Paul. He says, we, but we, we, us, you know, and all this stuff. Everybody thinks they're part of the we. If you're not a part of a system of social welfare that operates entirely by charity and takes care of all the religion, all the welfare needs of your society, if you're not a part of that, if you're still going to men who exercise authority one over the other for some of your social welfare, you're not the we and us Paul is talking about. Because Paul says we're not to eat at that table. He didn't say we could we could nibble now and then he said we're not to eat at that table. That is the table of the devil. That that's that that is clearly against what Christ said to do. So you're not the we that Paul is talking about if you're still practicing impure religion, impure social welfare. You need to repent of that. So those are the six mistakes. And Peace on your house and <laughs> may God be with you. God bless. You.
1: you have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom Dot his holy church dot net